everyone. This is at New York iDoc, aka Dr. Damaris Raimondi. I'm an optometrist and welcome to my podcast. My show is for anyone looking to be inspired by the unique stories experienced by healthcare professionals across varying medical fields. If you want to catch my episode the moment that I upload it, hit that subscribe button and let's get today's show on the road. Today's guest is a double board certified physician specializing in anesthesiology and obesity medicine. She also has a master's in public health, and she recently found herself in the front lines of a major New York City hospital caring for patients sick with COVID-19. She is our healthcare hero today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Amanda Kersner. Yay! Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, we're excited to have you too to learn more about what's going on in the front lines. But before we get into that, as usual, my guests, I usually meet everybody, meet quote unquote on Instagram. And I got to know you after I did the episode with Dr. Salas Whalen at New York Endocrinology, where I was illuminated on the topic of obesity medicine. And basically, you and I spoke, and all of this happened two weeks before the pandemic struck. And then you started talking about your experiences on your Instagram, which your handle is at obesity medicine doc. Let's get to know you a little better. Sure. As a child, did you know you wanted to be a doctor? My father was a doctor um, and he actually went to medical school the year I was born. So he did his residency while I was growing up. Um, it was a second career for him. So he went back when he was 29 and he's someone who just loved it. He was so happy to do it as a second career. So I did grow up kind of wanting to get into the healthcare field. And um, I was definitely encouraged by my parents. If I could ask, what was his first career? He was in business. My mother, she doesn't work as a nurse anymore. She's a lawyer. But originally, she was going to go to med school. She went back and started taking the pre-med courses. Well, my dad had this other career. And she was doing so well in them. And um, he was kind of like, wow, that looks interesting. If she could do that, then I could do that. And long story short, they both ended up applying to med school. And then my mom got pregnant with me. And she felt like it was really just going to be too hard to have two parents in med school. She didn't know what she was going to do with me. So she let my father be the doctor. And she ended up going to law school and becoming a medical malpractice attorney. Defense. Myself and both of my brothers are all physicians as well. Gosh, wait, are you the youngest? I'm actually the the, I'm the oldest, but we're a three kids in three years kind of situation. So okay. the middle but brother is all... also anesthesia, and the younger brother is um he's a cardiology fellow. He's gonna go into electrophysiology. That's awesome. I guess, yeah, you were like in kindergarten and stuff, seeing your uh, father in the thick of it all. That's great. But, you know, when I went to college, I Mm -hmm. started the pre-med courses and, you know, there, the difference between med school and law school is the fact that for med school, you can't wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I'll go to med school. You have to have, I'm not sure if it's changed. Um, Once I go to med school, it was like, wow, I think I started in 2009. So 10 years ago, you had to have taken like the eight pre-med courses. You had to have taken the MCAT, whereas 
for the LSAT for law school, you could, you don't have to major in anything. You could just be like, you know what? I like L what? I think I'll, t- I think I'll take the LSAT today. <laughs> but, um, so that's the difference. So I started taking these pre-med classes and I sort of felt like they were very boring. Biology was boring, organic chemistry. So there was a brief period in college where I said, you know what? I think I'm going to do law. And then I, I ended up continuing the pre-med classes the whole time just in case but I majored in political science and then when it was over I went to Columbia and got a master's of public health in healthcare policy and management so sort of tying the medicine and the political science and like the whole thing together and then I ultimately decided you know I think I will go to medical school because I think I, I felt like I would regret it if I didn't. There you go keeping your options open I like that. What initially drew your attention to anesthesiology? It's very interesting. When you're in medical school, the first and second years are in the classrooms. You're in the classroom taking notes. You're doing tests. And the second two years are in the hospital. And you're doing different rotations. And there were only, I think there were eight. I can't remember how many required rotations there were. And they were they were the basic specialties. So these are just rotations that you have to go through to graduate medical school. So there were family medicine, internal medicine, surgery, OBGYN, psychiatry, pediatrics, but anesthesia is not one of them. So they make you go through those your third year, and then you can do electives. And a lot of the time, there are some requirements. I know some schools require anesthesia during their surgery elective. My school didn't. But you kind of, someone has to make you aware of these specialties that are not required. Something has to spark your interest. You have to know someone, you have to have to read about it or just have some sort of interest because, you know, obviously anesthesia was on my radar because my father's an anesthesiologist, but I mean, I never did an ophthalmology rotation, for example. Um, I could love ophthalmology and I would never know it. So really, because my father was an anesthesiologist, I had exposure to the specialty. And there were a lot of things I liked about it. There were a lot of things I didn't know before I went into it um, that I sort of wish I would have known. But overall, I'm very happy with my choice. I think it's a good fit for my personality. So that's how I ended up going into that. What do you mean by good fit and personality? Like, is it really like detail oriented? It's very detail oriented. Um, it's, It's funny because anesthesia used to be like a lifestyle specialty, like back in the day, it is so not a lifestyle specialty. Now, the good thing about it is there is flexibility with jobs. So you can work two days a week, you can work three days a week, you can do a full job being a call taker. Um, You could work in an endo office. The great thing is, and there's a shortage of anesthesiologists right now, in the country there's been for a bunch of years because people are having more and more surgeries and people are requesting anesthesia for things that they never requested anesthesia for in the past. So for example, like years ago, people didn't have anesthesia for colonoscopies. Now they do. They just had a little sedation from their GI doctor. Uh, We're doing it everywhere now. We're doing it in interventional cardiology. We're needed. We're needed in OB. We're needed in GI. We're needed in electrophysiology sometimes cardiac cath, um, obviously the the main operating room, eye surgery, we're just very spread very thin. We work with a lot of different specialties. Even when I was at the big hospital that I um, used to work at the big university hospital, I've since switched to a smaller community hospital. 
I was doing elective anesthesia for um, MRIs, meaning people felt like they were claustrophobic and they needed an MRI and they, they wanted general anesthesia to get their MRI and we would do it. So it used to be a lifestyle specialty. Now it's definitely not because, you know, the hospitals make money as we now know from COVID. This is the reason they're losing money is because all the elective procedures were canceled. They really make them um, doing procedures and the operating room is really, really where they make the most money. So the hospital will let a surgeon do procedures until they're done, until they're blue in the face, until two or three or four in the morning. And obviously you can't really do surgery without an anesthesiologist. So it's not as much a lifestyle specialty anymore. We work really, really hard, but there is flexibility in the job. You need to be very detail oriented. You have so much responsibility, um, which I thought was really cool. Um, You're kind of like an ICU doctor for every patient you have but you're only paying attention to the one patient. Your main focus is on the one patient when you're in the operating room. And you could take care of anything for the patient. Um, Their blood pressure gets too low. You can give them something to bring it up. We also, I really like doing procedures. We put in a lot of lines. I do a lot of regional nerve blocks, spinals, epidurals, intubations, and then you manage them and you give them whatever you need and you want them to wake up happy and safe and with their pain under control in an ideal situation. But, you know, our real job is to be, someone once said this and it resonated, we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable because, um, you know, everyone's like, oh, the anesthesiologists are sitting there. They're just monitoring the blood pressure and the breathing. And they're just sitting there chilling. If something goes wrong, we're running the code. We're resuscitating the patient. We're transfusing the patient. We're hanging blood. Basically, it comes down to us. And things can go wrong very, very quickly in anesthesia. And we have to be trained to sort of um, deal with that and think on our feet very quickly. Yes, that sounds really grueling. But thank you so much for going through that so that our Uh, especially our younger listeners listening who are more curious about that specialty. Certainly so much goes into it. I have heard that be said too about anesthesiologists. And I'm like, you know, personally, I commend you because I don't know if I'd be able to handle that responsibility. Definitely a lot. And congratulations on obesity medicine. Did you just do your board? I just did them in February. They're only given once a year. Um, it's a newer specialty. Um, I think, I think it started in 2016, the American Board of Obesity Medicine. And obviously, I think it's really needed in the country because it's a huge public health issue. And I was able to just study and take the boards and have to do an extra fellowship, which the fellowships are now popping up. I know there's one at Cornell. I went to a conference and I wanted to um, get it in before it became a fellowship and I wouldn't be able to do it anymore. Yeah, I didn't even realize like that it was a specialty in that sense. Uh, Like I was saying, Dr. Salas Whalen had to school me on all that. I was ready to ask her lifestyle questions. And then she's like, no, there's so much more. You know, I didn't even know a lot about it until I started um, going to these conferences and studying for the exam either. I just knew it was, you know, I have the master's in public health. It's a huge public health issue. And it really, really obesity affects the anesthesia. So it really affected my everyday practice in medicine from the fact that I do a lot of bariatric surgery, but even an obese patient, it changes the way we do anesthesia for a routine procedure, even an appendectomy. 
things are different. We have to take different precautions and different steps if the patient is morbidly obese. It makes our job much more difficult. And, you know, I would really love to help people conquer this medical problem. And I don't think it gets enough respect or exposure as a medical problem. I think there is a stigma to it. And I think we need to start moving away from that and look at it as more of a public health issue. Yes, absolutely. Especially the way that it's impacting the pediatric population too. It's absolutely alarming. And people think it's as simple as um, changing their diet, but it's really, really not. Mm -hmm. There is a huge genetic component to obesity, a hormonal component to obesity. You know, when I was studying for this exam, we had to study neurons and hormones and things that I hadn't even thought of since medical school. So it's very complex. And there's a lot of treatments and a lot of options that I didn't even know about. A lot of medications. There are so many new amazing medications that are out to help people with obesity. So we really need to um, start educating people more about that. So that's why I created the Instagram handle. Yes, educating the public on anything that we can, that we have an expertise on is so important. And yes, like you were saying, we have just met and then all of a sudden COVID happened and you started sharing more about your experiences and my mouth was just dropped open listening to your Instagram stories. Could you share with us what was happening I mean, you know, to you and at the hospital early March? So early March. I mean, I had heard of COVID, I, uh, coronavirus. Really, they, 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 stopped, they started calling it COVID in March. Before that, it was, have you heard about the coronavirus? And I really didn't pay much attention to it. I remember in very, very early March, I had this add-on endoscopy case I was doing. And it was a patient from the ICU and the patient um, had some mental problems that they couldn't sign consent for themselves. So I had to call up their family member and I had to go through their pre-op. So we do a pre-operative exam. We look at the patient's entire medical history and current medical history before we'll put them under anesthesia because it really changes our plan and what drugs we'll give and what lines we'll put in. And basically it really, we alter the anesthetic to the patient. And someone wrote on this pre-op coronavirus. So coronavirus has been around forever. It's one of the strains of the common cold. So the person wrote coronavirus on this pre-op. And then I think people started freaking out. Someone else pre op the patient for me while I was in another case. Sometimes that happens. And the, the person came back, everyone started freaking out and wrote in parentheses, not Wuhan coronavirus, American coronavirus. Oh that was really like the first I had really heard of it. And then things started like slowly happening. Like there was one day at work, um, there was just a lot of things in the news and things were changing hourly. When um, I did my first case of the day, the patient in pre-op was allowed to have their family member. And by the second case of the day, the family member was not allowed up. The first case of the day, the patient wasn't wearing a mask. Second case of the day, the patient was wearing a mask. Third case of the day, we were all wearing masks all day. It was like everything was changing hourly. People really weren't sure what was going on. And I think I was on call the weekend of March 15th. And we got the text that schools were closing for the kids. I think I was doing a hip fracture over the weekend. And a surgeon said, oh, my God, uh, my wife just sent me a text. And this is what I heard. I was like, this is really strange. This is, you know, and I now work at, you know, a smaller community hospital. It's the same 
um, hospital system I was working in before, I really thought it was going to affect the big university hospital with the big ICUs. And we have a very teeny ICU in my hospital. We do a lot of elective orthopedic procedures, bariatric procedures. We do a lot of eye surgery, general surgery, plastic surgery. We don't do a whole lot of vascular or cardiac or we don't have extensive ICUs in my hospital. So I didn't really think it was going to affect us that much. And then within the next few weeks, all elective surgery stopped. A lot of my colleagues stopped working. Either they were um, had underlying medical issues, they had no child care for their kids. Some of them were older and they didn't want to be exposed. And they turned the post-anesthesia care unit, the PACU, into this huge COVID ICU. Like things were just changing daily. And then, um, so there were only a few of us working and we formed these intubation teams because obviously we needed to intubate these patients and other doctors do know how to intubate patients. I know ER doctors are trained and ICU doctors are trained, but the rule of thumb is you want to have the person with the most expertise intubate the patient. So we were really doing all the intubations. These patients were not your typical intubation. They, it was kind of very scary to intubate these patients. Usually when you intubate someone, which is putting um, endotracheal tube um, down someone's throat or their trachea to hook them up to a ventilator to keep them breathing. So the ventilator will keep them breathing if they're not doing a good job on their own. It can be pretty straightforward. You let them breathe oxygen so they have a reserve before you give them the medication to put the tube down your throat because you want to blunt their response. The normal response someone would have if someone's shoving a tube down their throat is to, to yank it out of your hands and yank it out of their throat. So we have to get the medicine to put them to sleep to stop them from breathing so it's easier for us to put the tube down their throat. And with these patients, we couldn't get their oxygen saturation up to begin with. So they were starting at a lower oxygen saturation, like 76% I had one patient. And then we had to get the tube in. A lot of the times they had swollen vocal cords and it was kind of more difficult than the normal intubation to get the tube in. And then usually once you hook them up to the ventilator and you're, they put them on 100% oxygen, they should come up very quickly. These patients were not coming up. So they were very difficult. So we had these intubation teams, we were rotating, but there were only a few of us working. And then usually I switched from the big university hospital to the smaller community hospital. I have three children. I had them all during my residency. I take home call now instead of having to sleep at the hospital for 24 hours. But one of the patients, I guess they couldn't intubate before the anesthesiologist got there at one of the other smaller hospitals. Patient died. So they mandated that we now start sleeping in these hospitals. <laughs> so oh they didn't even have a call room for us. So we were nomads in the middle of the night. And it was like one intubation to the next intubation. But intubation is really the riskiest procedure when it comes to COVID because every time we do it, the, we're, we're basically in the patient's mouth and the virus aerosolizes everywhere. So we really needed extensive PPE. Um, people were talking about the N95 masks and they were wearing them for a week. It really wasn't safe for us to do that. Technically, they should be changed after every intubation. At first, we didn't have the protective gear. And then at the end, we, start, we started getting it. And honestly, it works because I've tested negative for COVID PCR and twice for the antibody test. And all of my colleagues who were intubating with me all of those nights, all negative. Oh, so wow. it's, it's, That's it's so great. Good. Yeah. To know that it works when we have it. Was the CDC saying that 
healthcare workers this should be wearing CDC bandanas. Was saying it was, so, that it was so, I found that so offensive and ridiculous. Yeah. And I really wish the people who said that could come into the hospital and see what we were dealing with. And I think they would change their tune. I was like horrified when I heard that. If you could help us understand more, especially since you were there treating the patients and, you know, you were there staying overnight, what happens to the body when someone is infected? When they're badly infected with COVID, they weren't really, they were having some shortness of breath. They weren't really coming into the hospital or getting bad. So like, I think it was day seven or day eight, they had shortness of breath. They were using their accessory muscles to breathe. They were breathing very fast. And when someone does that, um, they have to breathe very fast to get oxygen in. You know that they're going to have complete respiratory collapse because they're going to run out of energy if they're breathing that fast. And that was the only way they could get air in. I mean, there were a lot of times when the surgeon, I would say, you know what, this person, I'd be in the ICU. This person doesn't look good. I think we should intubate them. And, you know, the surgeon taking care of the patient was, they said to me, you know what, if we intubate this patient, they're not going to come off the ventilator. That might have been Mm -hmm. the case, but that doesn't mean that they didn't need to be intubated to begin with. And we always ended up doing it like two hours later. And I wanted to do it when their oxygen saturation was higher. Maybe it was 89, 90%. I didn't want to do it when they were crashing and it was 60%. And, you know, we were struggling to get the tube in Mm -hmm. and they almost died. I preferred to be proactive instead of reactive with these patients, but everyone had, you know, a different theory. People like hadn't dealt with this before. People, these patients, you know, in the patients in the ICU, if they have pneumonia, all these years, we know how to treat pneumonia. We didn't know how to treat this. We didn't know what to expect or how these patients would behave or respond for like a while. We sort of got it down in the end, but in the beginning, everyone was kind of just flying by the seat of their pants. Yeah, definitely a lot of, uh, lessons learned throughout these past weeks. And for my curiosity too, I'm certainly doing hardly any eye exams. So I've been doing mainly televisits trying to see what I can manage over the phone. So with the added free time, I've tried to look into COVID and everything. And I was even looking at a few YouTube videos about how ventilators work. But if I could hear it from you like a summarized version What are these special ventilators? A ventilator basically is something that hooks up to the endotracheal tube, which we put um, down the patient's trachea. We inflate a little balloon and it breathes for the patient. And we do it routinely every single day in surgery. For any sort of laparoscopic surgery, a lot of general surgeries, abdominal surgeries, we have to intubate the patient. So we put the tube down, we put them on the ventilator. And at the end of the surgery, we, you know, make sure the patient starts breathing on their own. We take the tube out. So the ventilators essentially breathe for the patient. So the people who really know how to use it are anesthesiologists, ICU doctors, respiratory therapists, pulmonary critical care, who are ICU doctors, but sometimes they're surgeons, um, ICU doctors. So just to contrast that, um, there are not that many people that know how to use a ventilator, so I won't get into specifics. Mm-hmm. But the only other way besides, you know, these ventilators, which is why they were such a big deal to have the patient breathe through the endotracheal tube when they couldn't breathe on their own, is through an Ambu bag. And the problem with the Ambu bag is you need to literally have someone sitting there squeezing the Ambu bag the entire time. And they were also worried about aerosolizing the 
disease, the droplets into the air, which can happen if you're squeezing a, a bag. So they were not having us do that. And often once we put the tube in, we'll give them like two breaths to see condensation on the tube to make sure it's in the right place. But they did not want us to do that. Sometimes when we would, um, we do surgeries and we keep the patient intubated for airway protection, or if it was a big surgery to give them time to recoup, we will put an AMBU bag on them and we will, the anesthesiologist will squeeze the AMBU bag until we get to the ICU to connect them to a ventilator. And during this COVID crisis, they did not want that. They would bring a, um, at least at my hospital, a portable ventilator to the OR to take us to the ICU until they can get hooked up to a permanent ventilator because they were just so afraid of this aerosolization of the virus. Such a difficult decision, but you got to keep your health workers safe and healthy. That's really important. And yeah, it just seems like such a complicated thing to manage. Uh, What is your opinion on the uh, reopening situation, especially with this new inflammatory syndrome affecting children really nervous because Mm. i mean and i totally feel this from people i think people have just had it they're like losing their minds in their house and they see that the cases have decreased and they have decreased i'm no longer sleeping at the hospital and it wasn't like one day they said okay amanda you don't have to sleep at the hospital anymore they just saw that gradually overnight we were doing fewer and fewer intubations so when it came to the point where it was zero intubations or one intubation overnight, they didn't need to keep us there 24 hours overnight in the hospital. They could send us home and call us when they needed us. But it's not over. I have three kids, two, four, and six. I thought, you know, let me see what happens with camp because it's been really difficult homeschooling them in the house. They're going crazy. It's been cold in New York. Mm-hmm. Now with this new stuff happening with the kids, there's no way I'm sending them to camp. And, you know, places are reopening and that's great. But I mean, even I'm driving to work, I see people not social distancing. I'm seeing kids riding their bikes together. It's still not something that's gone. And if we loosen everything so much, so fast, which I understand that people are eager to do, I think it's just going to be worse in a few months. It's going to be worse. And I can't imagine it being worse having worked in the ICUs and intubating these patients. But That's what I'm told it's going to be. I think people have to take a step back and take a deep breath and really um, we need to drive into people that this is not over. We still need to keep social distancing to some degree for everyone's safety. I don't know if you happen to see the United Federation of Teachers sent out this really awesome notice. I think it was mainly to union members, but somebody just put it out and they said that Unless in September there's a way that uh, somehow we could guarantee the safety of every single student in the public school system in New York, that there's no way that they're going to even consider reopening. Best friend's a private school teacher, and she said they presented them three scenarios. One was that everything's going to open and be the same, and they didn't think that was likely. Two, there's going to be some hybrid with distance learning in combination with some kids going to class, maybe half and half half the time. And then third, just a complete homeschool, virtual school. I I just, I really wish things would be contained by then, but um, I I don't, I think it's going to be bad if people, you know, if it's a free for all and people are not careful, 
this summer and coming up. I know that's the thing. People are just have had enough and it, the weather's getting nicer. Seriously, like outside on the street, it looks like the 90s. There's groups of kids on bikes, people just sitting all over like like our mall, um, the Target Mall on Queens Boulevard has like this like big seating area that nobody has sat on for 15 years. And when I drove by the other day, it was like, People were just there hanging out. I feel for the population. I feel secluded and isolated and I want to get out and see my friends and I want my kids to interact with other kids also. But at the same time, you know, if we don't keep these practices going, it's going to be worse. More people are going to die and people are going to be even more secluded. This whole pandemic has taught all of us to reprioritize everything and it's more question marks that's all it is really but you know thank you so much for your service I know we are all super thankful for that I mean hopefully things don't get any worse but for everybody who is considering like a career in medicine it's pretty exciting still pretty awesome it's still awesome to be able to have such a positive impact honor community and if you could please share with us some words of wisdom i still think it's a great field i think that especially anesthesia and definitely obesity medicine i think the two specialties that i'm boarded in are in great need i think it's a fulfilling career i think that you make a difference in people's lives i mean people say oh anesthesia there's no continuity of care but you're really with a patient when they really need you. You're with them before their scariest time, right before surgery. You're helping them get out of pain when they're in labor um, or when they're welcoming their child into the world. And it's just great to work in a field where you feel fulfilled every day. I think that anyone who has aspirations in medicine, don't give up. It's a hard road to get there, and it's really hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I know there were a lot of roadblocks along my way, but you could do it. If you want it enough, you could do it, and it will be worth it in the end. So what's next for you? So you have a practice maybe happening? I was thinking of opening an office. Now I'm thinking maybe I'll do it start virtually and end up um, maybe opening an office when things get better. I have to start working on my plans. I kind of took a full break on planning um, it during this whole COVID thing. I just got the board certification results um, from February and um, I'm going to move forward with that. I'm going to try to um, grow my Instagram and try to educate. I really would love to educate more people um, about obesity and their options and to help them feel fit and healthy and well. Yes. So many options that our patients need to learn about and any like interesting papers you're working on i have a chapter in a textbook on anesthesia it's the obesity chapter and the manual of clinical anesthesiology and it was supposed to come out in october at the asa or um the big anesthesia conference i don't even know if that's happening now and that's really um the only book i'm working on currently um we were we're talking with some of my friends who took the obesity exam about writing a review book for the obesity exam because we all found it really difficult to study for it. There wasn't like one source that had a lot of great information. So more on that to come. So much exciting stuff. 
thank you so much for your service and for taking your time thank you so much for having me this was incredible i'm so happy we made it happen yeah thank you and if you all listening enjoyed this conversation please leave us a rating and review and we're gonna sign off now say bye everybody bye